Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. This podcast contains references to wartime atrocities, aerial disasters and the conditions facing German and Russian soldiers on the Eastern Front during World War II, which were not very good. It also contains some bad language and will not be suitable for all listeners. It is the middle of the night in winter 1943. The sky is cloudless, but the light from the moon is weak. A German soldier sits with his battalion on the Eastern Front, trying to stay warm in freezing temperatures and avoid losing a limb to frostbite, like so many of his companions had the year before. All is quiet, until he hears a slight whoosh, which could be the wind, but he knows better. Fear strikes his heart. The witches have arrived. Hi, I'm Nicola, and I'm not a witch. I'm not a witch, even though I turned that man into a newt. I'm also a teacher in training and a historian with a focus on the history of masculinity and crime. And I'm Hannah. I'm a PhD student studying women's anti-nuclear activism, and I just bloody love Russian history. And welcome to Women of War, where we take a look at women throughout history and the different multifaceted, multi-angled, most complex ways they're involved in war, but sometimes they also just bombed the hell out of some Nazis. Which, you know, that's a great place to start. Always a good place to start with bombing Always the Nazis. Always bomb the Nazis. We have a, in my family, we do have a proud tradition of bombing fascists, oh, which included Nazis. Very good. Yes. My great-grandfather made planes to bomb the Nazis. Well, my, great, my grandmother planned out where those planes would go to bomb Japanese fascists. Excellent. Who were allied to the Nazis. This week, we're off to Mother Russia in World War II. And if you'd been paying attention to history, you might have heard of these badass women. Fun fact, if I wasn't an Australian historian, I would have been a Russian historian. But I speak and read absolutely zero Russian, so understanding the archives might have been a bit difficult. And, you know, the Russians are not great at sharing <laughs> their documents with you. I mean, at least in Australia, like, I can pretend our archives are open. Um, you know, even if it takes ASIO years to release files that are then redacted so they're useless. Um, to the ASIO agent listening to me, can you please check on my access request? I have a PhD to finish. You know I'm actually on an ASIO watch list, right? Yeah, I submitted your name. Oh. Oh, no. Anyway, speaking of lists, should we tell the people who we're looking at today? That was a terrible segue. Please see yourself out. That was last week's gag. Today, we're looking at a group of women who have one of the coolest fucking names of all time, the Soviet Night Witches. Sorry, Mum. I'm just, I'm so turned on right now. Sorry to my grandparents and parents. <laughs> so the Soviet night witches were, in official military terms, female pilots in the 588th Night Bomber Regiment and the 46th, I missed a number there. Lucky, I read a lot about this. Yeah, I was about to say, like, oh, you're the 6th Taman. <laughs> the 46th Taman Guards Night Bomber Aviation Regiment. Both of which are cool names, but definitely not as cool as night witches, so we're going to ignore proper military terminology, which is a thing we never do on this podcast. I like to think that military terminology is just a guide. But what reminded me of what you just said was a Taman. That's like the Taman should case in Adelaide with the Somerton man. Yeah, but this isn't a Cold War. Wait, no, wait. It was 1948 when they yeah. found him. So, um, and Taman should means finished or yeah. ended, but in Persian. So that was just yeah. really interesting. Like the, like the end guards, basically. It's kind of cool. This is not a true crime podcast and the Soviets weren't Persians. Oh, yeah. So we all know about Amelia Earhart and her mysterious disappearance, which, by the way, could have been solved at the time if the investigators had listened to the people on the islands near where she was last heard from, but that's a mysteries podcast episode, not a war history podcast episode. However, 
Amelia Earhart was only the most famous female pilot chugging around, but she was not the only female pilot chugging around in the sky. In 1903, the same year the Wright brothers flew their first airplane, Ada de Acosta was the first woman to pilot a motorised aircraft, i.e. an aircraft that didn't rely on the wind beneath its wings to move it. You are the wind beneath my wings. In 1908, Therese Petier was the first woman to fly solo in a plane in Italy, flying 2.5 metres above the ground for 200 metres, just above an Australian soldier at the start of World War I. (laughs) Also, you know those Wright brothers? They had a sister, Catherine Wright, who was also crucial to their work, but the Wright brothers plus their sister doesn't quite have the same ring to it. So basically, women have been flying as long as men, and if you believe in, like, you know, mythology, which I don't, women have been flying a lot longer, just on broomsticks. There were even at least four Russian women who flew reconnaissance planes in World War I. Two of them were princesses, but not those princesses. <laughs> These women went to the Tsar, yes, that Tsar, to get permission to fly, and one even became the first woman to be wounded in aerial combat. Is that something you want to be the first of? Probably not. Okay. So, before we get into Russian women terrifying Axis men, I feel like we need to do a quick recap of how the Soviet Union, USSR, became involved in World War II, which is also called the Great Patriotic War. Very on brand, the Soviet Union was an unofficial ally of Nazi Germany when the war broke out in 1939. Germany invaded Poland. Polish resistance, including mounting cavalry charges against German tanks, which, though futile, shows the bravery of the Poles and also the shock and unpreparedness of their military. Obviously, German panzers beat Polish palominos. The Soviets helped by occupying the eastern part of the country and gave Germany important raw materials, which you really knew when fighting a war effort. Put a pin in that for when the Nazis fall. (laughs) At this time, the Soviet Union was also involved in the Winter War with Finland and occupied Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Moldova. This semi-alliance lasted until June 1941, when Hitler being Hitler decided to Hitler and conquer Russia to take all the natural resources. Subsequently, the Germans attacked the Soviet Union on the 22nd of June 1941. The Soviets decided to ally with Britain and the rest was history, and then the Yankee Doodles did what was dandy and decided to show up. So basically, if you've learned anything from this show, don't attack your allies slash neutral parties in the hope that it will somehow make them not your enemy. Looking at you, Japan and Pearl Harbor. Also, just don't war. Hopefully you've learned that too. Okay, so the Soviets have officially entered World War II. So let's get on to how Soviet women got to fly planes into combat. While women in other countries at the time were members of the Air Force, their roles were pretty restricted to non-combat and largely on home soil. Female pilots in Britain, for example, would fly planes between the home air bases so that planes were in the right place for the combat pilots to take off. I mean, the Air Transport Auxiliary was its official name was a civilian air force responsible for ferrying new, damaged or fixed planes around the country, as well as the air force personnel as well, uh, between bases, airfields and factories. The transport auxiliary took all the pilots who couldn't serve in the Royal Air Force, which was primarily men who were deemed physically unfit or just too bloody tall to fit in the cockpit. They didn't really stop them because Roald Dahl was over six foot tall and they forced him into these little spitfires. But that was like towards the end. To start with, they're like, oh, okay. we take the short people. And at the and end, the they're opposite like... opposite of Israel. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Like, they're like, we'll take the short people for the Air Force. And then they're like, oh, fuck, everyone is now tall. And this is all British examples, I'm assuming. Like, yes. specifically yeah. in Britain. Yeah, this yeah. is the air transport auxiliary as, like, a, just an example of what the women could do. Yeah. Um, basically, if you could fly a plane, you could work for the auxiliary. So, you know, one arm, no worries. One leg, come on board. Short-sighted, no worries. You know, woman, hell fucking yeah. From 1940, female pilots who couldn't serve in the Air Force because of their gender were able to help the war effort by working for the air transport auxiliary. These women were na- nicknamed the Adder Girls, which really rubs me the wrong way. Um, but, you know. It's the 1940s. And I'm going to finally interrupt you here again before you get totally sidetracked because we can go into this in more detail when we cover the Women's Auxiliary Australian Air Force, the precursor to the modern 
women being in the Air Force in Australia. How dare you? Anyway, my how point, dare I? How dare you? My point was that this sort of support role was the most that female pilots around the world were really able to perform during World War II. But this wasn't the case in the Soviet Union. In fact, by the start of World War II, Soviet women constituted almost a third of trained pilots in the USSR and held more world records than any other female pilots around the globe. Did they only constitute a third, though, because so many men were dying? It just, like, culled the amount of male pilots No, this is the start of World War II. Oh, so they were just bad flyers. Yeah. The men, and they just kept dying. (laughs) Like, this is before all the... Russian soldiers are being killed in the war. Oh, yeah. no, I mean, going... To be fair, they were all killed in the Civil War a little bit earlier, but... All right, so Hitler, right, that guy, attempted to invade Russia in the winter like a fool in Operation Barbarossa, bringing the Soviets into a war now as an Axis enemy. This didn't end well for Hitler overall, but it was also not great for the Soviets, and the Eastern Front saw some of the bloodiest and most violent actions of the war. This meant as many men as could be spared had to be sent to the front to protect Moscow from Axis forces. Which was bad news for these men, but good news for Marina Raskova, the Soviet Amelia Earhart, who'd been trying to find a way to get women involved in the war right from the beginning. Did she also disappear in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to never be seen again, unless you count actual evidence? No, but she did disappear for 10 days after bailing from a flight over the Russian mainland and survived on a bar and a half of chocolate. Can I just tell you I couldn't survive on a bar and a half of chocolate for one day, let alone 10? <laughs> she occasionally ate some berries. My husband and I are in a miserable marriage. I have no idea what you're doing I mean, right like now. an annoying wife in a sitcom. Like, I could never survive for that long on a bar of chocolate. I'm so confused. Okay, sorry. (laughs) I don't know what that's got to do with anything, to be honest. Raskova, born Marina Malanina, because she likes the rhyme, in 1912, did not originally want to be a pilot, but rather a musician. Her father was an opera singer, and her aunt was a famous Russian singer. So Marina had a musical background. In proof that nothing has changed, Raskova didn't want the precarity of trying to make a career in music, and instead decided to pursue her secondary interest in chemistry. Which was a good decision because the Soviet Union was in the middle of major industrialization, so there were plenty of jobs. After the birth of her daughter and a divorce, Raskova began working at the Air Force Academy and realized that there were no female navigators, so he was a niche that she could work with. She trained and became the first female navigator in the Soviet Union. Raskova became a well-known figure for her record-breaking flights and was one of the first women to be awarded the title of Hero of the Soviet Union after a particularly ambitious and nearly deadly flight from Moscow to the further reaches of the Russian Far East, which is about 6,000 kilometres away. Difficult weather had made conditions dicey and Raskova had to bail out in case the plane crash-landed, crushing the area where the navigator sat. Raskova parachuted out to land in the forest with only a pistol, compass, pocket knife matches and the aforementioned chocolate. She spent 10 days trying to find the plane and her two pilots and nearly set the forest on fire in the meantime trying to eat mushrooms. How badly do you have to cook mushrooms to set a forest on fire? Just carefully. On the 10th day, Raskova found the plane and was surrounded by the pilots and their rescuers. She only had one shoe on by this point but refused assistance to walk to the plane and her comrades. Also, you know, she was near starvation, like... I feel like I should have put that in. I do know. Like, it's not just, she had one shoe. Oh, silly woman still wanted to walk to the plane. She was, like, dying, emaciated, dying. Yeah. Like, But she's uh, like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to walk to the I'm plane. I'm pretty sure it's actually a group of Russian cosmonauts during the Cold War. Um, they, they like, landed, as they were meant to land in, like, the wilderness um, after being in space. But they, like, landed in the wrong spot. So they spent, like, three days fending off wolves with an axe. Holy and shit. they just come from outer space. <laughs> Amazing. That's a movie. That is. A, I'm pretty sure it is a movie. It probably is. Very patriotic Russian movie. 
Raskova is a really interesting figure because while she was this pioneering woman, she was also a senior lieutenant of state security and was paid by the secret police, which is the People's Commissariat for International Affairs. No, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, very different, or NKVD in Russian, from at least 1937. She rose to prominence at a time when Stalin was purging many Red Army men and was awarded for meritorious service in 1940. Either way, by 1941, Raskova was a celebrity known across the Soviet Union. She was particularly popular among Soviet women. When the Soviet Union joined the war against Germany in the Great Patriotic War, Raskova was inundated with letters from women wanting to know how they could join the war effort. Female pilots in particular were eager to get involved but were unwanted by the Air Force who already had plenty of male pilots and not enough planes for them to fly in. Many of these women were highly skilled pilots driven by a sense of patriotism to volunteer their services. Patriotism. Her position on women's involvement in the war, however, was a bit complicated. While she had called for Soviet women to be, quote, ready at any moment to sit in a combat machine and plunge into battle with the bloodthirsty enemy, end quote, she also stated that women should be ready to sacrifice their sons, husbands and brothers to the war. Regardless, Raskova was pretty damn pleased when, on October 8th, 1941, the State Defence Committee, or the GKO, issued Secret Order Number 99, in which Stalin gave the go-ahead for female Air Force units to be formed by the 1st of December. She likely took the cause to him personally, as she was on good terms with him, but though most stories of the Night Witches credit Raskova solely with the formation of women's air regiments, her role is probably exaggerated in line with the Stalin-era history of promoting individual Soviet superhero figures. More recently, historians have credited the Central Committee of the Communist Union of Youth in the Soviet Union, or the Commissol. Commissol. The Commissol. This would have been a place where young women could have expressed their desire to join the fight, particularly up after Operation Barbarossa, and thus it was the Commissol. Commissol. God. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I didn't have to do words. I can't pronounce. At least they're not French. And thus it was the Commissol who convinced the Red Army that a female flying unit would be a great idea. Hooray! Undoubtedly, Raskova's prominence in both the party and popular imagination would have helped the cause. Um, Side note here also, we're going to mention the party a lot in this episode, but we don't mean a good time with ice cream cake, but the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Anyway, none of this would have mattered without the numbers of young women demanding that they be allowed to fight. With the passing of Order Number 99, execute Order 66, Soviet women were the first women who could fly and engage in aerial combat. But this decision could also put some backs up by challenging Soviet masculinity and the military advantage offered is actually debatable. So why did Stalin okay it? It seems that it was an opportunity to appease the demands of all those female pilots, women, right, without (laughs) opening up the entirety of the armed forces to female volunteers. The air regiments were kept secret, or as secret as you can when you've got women flying around in the sky. It's not really secret. No, not really at all. Particularly because the Soviets didn't want to reveal they had, quote, resorted to using female soldiers, unquote. Also, just the fact is, like, you have to be trained to be a pilot. It's like, I want to join the arm. I want to be a woman and fight in the army. It's like, you have to be able to fly a plane. But a lot of these women weren't trained to fly planes. Really? No. You're getting ahead of yourself. Like, a lot of these women got training later on. Oh, no, because I was just assuming it was, like, um... It was a way of, like, sorting out, we, we, we want you all to be over five foot tall. We want you all to have, like, equal length arms, which would be nice. Who has equal length arms? I don't know. No. No, so, like, they got training on the job. So, basically, it was sort of like, we can say it's because these people have pilot training. These women have pilot training. Therefore, like, so kind of what you were saying, but that's their argument. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they couldn't have got women into the armed forces. It was just... Yeah, I guess They were just kind of using it as a way to bar people 
Yeah. We so they can still like, definitely yeah. control who's coming in and who's exactly, going out. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. So because it was kept so secret, the military couldn't just send out a general call for volunteers. Might give the game away just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so it was the Komsomol who did the recruiting. The Komsomol Central Committee had fingers in many, many vodka bottles, including at universities and factories, and they so they could appeal for volunteers easily. The recruits that gathered at the Komsomol CC offices were therefore from across society and with a variety of skills and experience. They had to be volunteers, so there wasn't any conscription here, and they had to enthusiastically commit to their course without any fear or doubt. Also, their parents had to agree. Mom, can I join the Air Force? No. Thank you, Mother. All right. The women who volunteered had been shaped by the experiences of their youth. In part, this would have been through the Komsomol. Members were between 14 and 28 and thus very open to the influence of its training. For the party, the Komsomol was an important propaganda tool teaching the ideals of communism, at least communism as the party understood it, and worked to mould Russian youth into productive, disciplined members of Soviet society. It was essentially similar to Hitler Youth as an organisation designed to inculcate young members into the beliefs of the ruling regime. Women involved in the Komsomol would have been brought up to believe in patriotic duty to the motherland. Family political backgrounds would also have influenced who volunteered. So women like Polina Gelman grew up on stories of their fathers fighting in the Russian Civil War and the cruelties good Bolshevik soldiers good suffered, Bolshevik soldiers suffered at the hands of the anti-communist forces. The whites. The whites. I did put in whites in the script and then I was like, it may not be clear that we're talking about the white Russians as opposed to just white Russians. We're not talking about like a whole army of like milky vodka drinks. Um, the white Russians were monarchists who wanted mm-hmm. to restore a form of the monarchy to Russia during the Russian Civil War. Everyone was colour-coded in the Russian Civil War, which is very fabulous. It's very handy. Blacks greens were the Green Party, bloody Adam Band, and reds were the communists. (laughs) Greens were the Czechoslovakians. Bloody Adam Band. (laughs) (laughs) And they were just trying to get home. Like, they're just trying to get... Oh, Czech foreign legion. Like, literally, they're just trying to get around. I I feel so much sorry for that. That's a Scooby-Doo thing as well. (laughs) Yeah. That's Betty Hill. Yevdokia Beshenskaya, the later commander of the Night Bomber Regiment, was raised by her aunt and uncle in rural Russia. Both her aunt and her uncle were Communist Party members, and her uncle had served in the Red Army in the Civil War. Stories of his military experiences had inspired Beshenskaya, and at 16, she led a group of young pioneers to take quote unquote excess grain from peasants after listening to Stalin's 1929 speech blaming those peasants for grain shortages. And Hannah, were there actual grain shortages caused by the peasantry? Nicola, there were not grain shortages caused by the peasantry. They were probably eating the grain they'd grown because they were dying of hunger. How bloody dare they? What a shortage. Raskova received thousands of applications from Soviet women like these for the three Air Force squads. The women were mostly in their late teens or early 20s and were motivated by patriotism for Mother Russia and a sense of duty towards their homeland. Others were driven by revenge for the loss that Germany had caused them, including Yevdokia Nosal, who volunteered after her newborn had been killed in a bombing raid. Raskova narrowed down the applications to about 400 women who moved to the small town of Engels near Stalingrad, nine days away from Moscow, to begin training for the three different regiments. Fighters, heavy bombers and night bombers. Fun fact, Engels is named after Yeah, I was endings. just about to yeah. say, like, Engels, Engels, Engels. Engels, Makes sense, it's yeah. near Stalingrad as well, then. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's sort of like they're the two, you know. The city of Marx! Yeah. Anyway, Raskova made the decision that these regiments should be new female-only regiments, perhaps assuming, correctly, that men would struggle with women pilots and male prejudice would just get in the way of these women doing their jobs. The volunteers were unhappy at being sent to Engels. Maybe they just hated Frederick. Everyone forgets about Engels. Poor, poor Engels. 
He got a town named after him. Mark's just sleeping on his couch and Angus is like, I better be mentioning your fucking book. (laughs) I get a town. But the volunteers were unhappy at being sent to Angles, which was close to the front, and conditions there didn't help ease their unhappiness. The comforts of Engels Aviation School for Pilots was, to put it nicely, pretty damn bleak. Barracks were heated only enough to take the chill off, which was not great when heading into winter in Russia. Raskova treated them immediately as military personnel, handing out ill-fitting male uniforms, two big boots, and cutting their hair short. They didn't like it. They were pretty like, excuse me, I had lovely pigtails. I had lovely Russian pigtails. So unlike at the universities that many came from, strict military hierarchy was enforced. And these women would learn that the Red Army did not have a forgive and let live policy to misdemeanours. Punishment for even minor infractions could be harsh. Um, In one example, two women were nearly sentenced to 10 years in the gulag for making underwear out of a silk parachute. Which, I mean, it seems extreme, especially considering that, you know, a lot of parachutes were turned into clothes at the time. But also, just go commando. Like, you're wearing a full flight suit. My thinking is, and this is probably going to give it TMI, I don't reckon they would have had tampons. So to wear, like, your period rags, whatever they were using, mm. you'd need underwear to keep them on. Yeah, that's true. Maybe. But only a few days a month. That's true. But I also feel like the turning clothes from Paris, turning Paris into clothes, that only happened after World War II. That I yeah, thought. like... Because it was like, I made my wedding dress out of my husband's parachute. He's back from Changi. I think some bits yeah. happened in the war. Like, it's, so it's, um, it's, it's not unprecedented. Yeah. But it's just like, I... You know, it seems extreme, but also like surely you, you would need have had, parachutes. Surely like, you would have had a different fabric you could have used. Yeah, yeah. You know, parachutes, I, crucial life-saving devices, not underwear. On the 7th of November, happy birthday, mum, 1941, these women pledged the Red Army Oath only in Russian. I, a citizen of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, entering into the ranks of the Workers' Peasants Red Army, take this oath and solemnly promise to be an honest, brave, disciplined, vigilant fighter, staunchly to protect military and state secrets, and unquestioningly to obey all military regulations and orders of commanders and superiors. I don't know what accent this is, but I enjoy it. It's not Russian, but it's it's a fun accent. Yeah. I promise to conscientiously to study military affairs in every way to protect military and state property, and to my last breath to be faithful to the people, the Soviet mother land and the workers peasants government i am always prepared on order of the workers peasants government to rise to the defense of my motherland the union of soviet socialist republics and as a fighting man of the workers peasants red army i promise to defend it bravely skillfully with dignity and honor sparing neither my blood nor my life itself for the achievement of total victory over our enemies if by evil intent I should violate this, my solemn oath, and let the severe punishment of Soviet law and the total hatred and contempt of the working classes befall me. Am I now a night witch? Yes. Oh! Gonna go hunt some capitalists. So, brushing past all the patriotic, nationalistic, dare I say, brainwashy sentiment, please don't come for me, Putin. <laughs> this oath really just encapsulates the gender dynamics at play here. So, even when the women were swearing into the military, they swear in as a fighting man. So they didn't alter that to fighting woman. They, that said, I'm a fighting man. Um, so it stayed in the masculine. But they were promising to defend the motherland, which, of course, we see all throughout history after the rise of the nation state, the nation as woman in need of protection. After they took the oath, Raskova made a speech about women's contributions to wars, evoking famous heroines like Joan of Arc, but reminded the women that thanks to the 1936 constitution, Soviet women were equal to men legally. Technically. Technically. Technically legally. This did come across in how the women's air regiments were conceptualised, however. Um, so they were not women's auxiliary forces like the WAF, uh, nor were they set up as women's regiments. They wore the same clothes and equipment, they had the same training, you know, except like the Cliff Notes version of the training. 
The women were split up into groups of pilots, navigators, mechanics and armourers, according to their previous experience. So some, as we mentioned earlier, had no training prior to this, but many had experience as pilots or flying instructors. To be a pilot, the women needed a minimum of 500 hours of flying under their belt. So you'd think this would rule out a lot, but there was actually too many pilots. Really? Yeah, so some of the pilots had to retrain as navigators, which, you know, they were really pissed about. Yeah. Which, like, you know, navigator isn't as cool a job. Like, it's just as important. You're still on a plane, but it just doesn't have the same oomph. It's not as cool, though. Yeah. It just isn't. Like, that, that's why they didn't like it. Yeah. Because there was this idea that, it, you know, the, the pilots are the cool ones. Navigators, you're just like, I'm reading a map. Because of the short time pressure, they only had a few months to train for combat flying. So they were trying to cram in what would normally take years. Um, but, you know, their previous work and study experience helped here. So university students who had studied maths and science went into the navigator stream, while factory workers trained as mechanics and ground staff. So they were starting to train sort of from scratch for these roles, but they, they had, had previous experience. experience. Like, yeah. okay, you don't know how to work on a plane, but you know how to fix a car. So, you know, or you know how to work the, you know, the factory belt. So you can, you know, you can learn these things. Yeah. I yeah. love that. On the 8th of February, 1942, the... F- 588. Five... I don't know why that scared me so much. <laughs> I'm teaching maths, like, on you, Tuesday. You can count up to three digits, can't you? Yeah. Okay, good. On the 8th of February, 1942, the 588th Night Bomber Aviation Regiment was officially formed with 115 recruits. Out of the other women at Engels came the 586th Fighter Regiment and the 587th Bomber Regiment. The first two of these regiments, the 586 and the 587, did cool stuff too, but we're going to focus on the 588 because A, cool, and B, it was the only one of these three to remain a purely female air regiment, and C, it has the most information out there for us in English because it fits in so nicely with the patriotic image the Soviet Union wanted to portray, meaning that the Soviets were more than happy to share archival records. That also meant it was easy for Brezhnev, who was a later leader of the Soviet Union, to revive their story in later propaganda about the Great Patriotic War. We're also going to keep calling it the 588, or the Night Witches, even though it would later be named the 46 Guards Bomber Regiment in honour of their service. It's because we both go over saying killed, though we don't want to say bombers. This shit does get confusing, though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The, the Guards one, like, that was an honour, so being re-designated a Guards move, like a Guards Regiment, was, like, a really high honour. Um, so, but... We don't want to confuse people. Yeah. So we're Night Witches yeah. sound, 588 yeah. sounds better than 46. 588 sounds better. Like, it's easier to do short rather than, like, 46 because one of the other regiments also became a guards regiment. So, cool. again, you've got to differentiate. Despite the dangerous flying conditions they would encounter, the newest planes, the Yak Fighters and the P-2 Bombers... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> My range has stopped. Okay. <laughs> There's no air in here. Just full of COVID. <laughs> Despite the dangerous flying conditions the night witches would encounter, the newest planes, which were the Yak Fighters and the P-2 Bombers, were given to the two other women's air regiments. And the 588th was stuck with the old P-02 planes that were never meant to see combat. Meow. They were designed in the 1920s. Um, and the Polykarpov Piru 2 plane was outdated compared to most World War II combat aircraft. The biplane was essentially similar to what the Wrights pioneered in 1903. Like, let's be real. There were very few biplanes in World War II for yeah. most other countries yeah. until the very end. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's made of wood. It's got two wings on each side stacked on top of each other. Um, though they were more manoeuvrable, at least, um, than the monoplanes, which, funnily enough, were planes with one wing on each side. Uh, biplanes suffered from issues with drag, reducing speeds... Um, and so by World War II, biplanes were slowly being phased out. 
The armed forces are actually the last to stop using biplanes, which seems crazy to me. But various air forces had been experimenting with monoplane designs as early as the late years of World War One. What if we take all the wings off, Henry? <laughs> Shut up, Henry. <laughs> That's why Henry Ford went into cars. <laughs> he was really anti-Semitic. Yeah. So by World War Two, most remaining... <laughs> By World War II, most remaining biplanes on both the Axis and Allied sides had been relegated to support craft, though some, including the Knight, which is period two, were still using combat roles. The Pro 2 did have some advantages. Mm-hmm. It had a low fuel consumption, like my Hyundai gets. It was easy to operate, like my Hyundai gets, and could land almost anywhere, like my Hyundai gets. Your car cannot fly. No, but my philosophy is that any car is a four-wheel drive if you try hard enough and if you believe in it. Never so drive I feel, in the outback, I ever. feel like this kind of, you know, applies here. Yeah, all right, sure. Yeah. Like the Night Witch's period too, could hold between six and eight bombs with a crew of two. It could also catch on fire easily, so that's not great. Like your Hyundai gets. Yeah. Um, and it was missing radio, armour, sights, parachutes, machine guns, which really, in the scheme of aerial battle, they're minor things. So you've basically got a kayak with wings on it. Pretty much. Bombs. Yeah. It's like someone got some pieces of wood and a bit of canvas and they're like, we can make this fly. And we they can chuck a bomb on it. And then they did. Yeah. Despite being stuck with a plain version of two cans and a piece of string, the women of the 588 threw themselves into training again, this time for night missions. Night flying at this time was pretty damn complicated. Things like radar, which make night flying easier, were still very new and top secret, and most planes were not equipped. And you don't want too many lights to see with if you're flying a night mission, because then those Germans can see you and shoot at you, and then you'll die. And when you're flying a plane that's made of wooden fabric, you've got to last less time than the people who have planes made of metal. Mm. Like, especially some of the, the missiles the Germans were using would, like, instantly burst the planes into flame. Yeah. Like just, I will say on this front, the Allies and the Germans are still winning. Like the non-Russian Allies are winning in names of like cool planes because like we got like the Stuka and the yeah. Spitfire and the Lancaster bomber. They just sound cooler. So how much time did these women have for night flight training? <laughs> <laughs> so these women had time for only five night flights and three nighttime bombing exercises before being sent to the front. So you know that's really not enough time I feel to learn how to easily manoeuvre a plane at night with a bomb on it. That's basically the average that the first pilots were given in World War One, mm, and that yeah. ended fucking badly. Yeah, so, you know, learn from things. Train people. But, you know, it's, it's war. war! Yeah. Um, also, remember how we said there was very few trained navigators? That made it hard also because you're relying on someone who's been in the job for a few months. Um, and only in daylight conditions <laughs> too. Like, the navigators didn't train at night to direct you around the pitch black sky. <laughs> the sun rises in the east, so let's just wait eight hours. <laughs> so, like, that's that's making things difficult as well. So this predictably ended quite badly, um, with two planes crashing in a night exercise in March, killing all four crew and delaying the night witch's arrival at the front by two months. But on the 23rd of May, 1942, the 588th was sent to the Southern Front to join up with the 4th Air Army, bombing bridges, enemy troops and enemy supply stores across Crimea, Belarusia, Poland and Berlin. Their first combat flight was in early June 1942. The 588 were deployed in the Caucasus, I think. The 588 were deployed in the Caucasus region, basically southern Russia, and now occupied by modern-day Armenia, Azerbaijan and Georgia. During the summer of 1942, as the Germans marched towards Stalingrad and what will become one of the deadliest battles in history. It was a disheartening period with the Soviet forces constantly being forced to retreat, and the women of the 588 felt shame that they had to flee before the enemy. Their achievements were not initially publicised in party publications, again, probably to keep it all under wraps, and so none of the leading war correspondents reported on these women until late 1942 and early 1943. 
In Soviet style, the press coverage from these years was not only presenting a very particular image of patriotic heroism by focusing on only a few individual women, it was also at times just glancing at the truth in the rearview mirror. Like when Pravda, the official newspaper of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, published a story about Lieutenant Valeria Komayova becoming the first female fighter pilot to shoot down a bomber plane at night two weeks after her death. I mean, it would have spoiled the mood if they mentioned she was dead. Things often spoil the mood if they're dead. All right. Infuriatingly, I just read this with someone. I'm very infuriated. I know, right? <laughs> the press labelled men flying PO2 planes eagles while the women were eaglets. Mm-hmm. Also, aglets are the plastic things on the end of your shoelaces. So just because they were proving themselves in battle didn't mean the women's regiments were accepted. Male officers and Air Force personnel were at best sceptical of the night witches and at worst contemptuous, with many questioning the pilot's femininity. To combat this, the press included press photos of the women checking their hair in a mirror next to the plane. When they joined the 4th Air Army at the front, the night witches were unwanted and written off as flying grannies or little girls. Isn't it just, you know, it's delightful. so respectful. I will say a little girl's a lot lighter, so you can save on fuel by having them in combat. Checkmate! Pro tip. Man all your planes with five-year-old girls. Yes. So even though their planes were constantly at risk of bursting into flames, the night witches developed a new tactic. Make one plane the target for enemy fire while the other plane attacks the enemy when their back is turned. Classic bait and switch. The PO2 could only carry two bombs at a time, and even that meant that the pilots had to fly dangerously low to manage the weight. This led to their nighttime missions and their tactics. But what really marked the 588th tactics was, and what led to them being named Night Witches, was their batshit bonkers decision to just casually turn the engine off in the middle of the air. What? This, this meant they could arrive silently. Oh. So, so the PO2 was fitted with noise and flare mufflers to increase its stealth, but the women of the 588th didn't think that was good enough. Probably because it didn't really work that great. You can still hear a plane, even when it's trying to be stealthy. So while one or two planes would draw the fire of the Germans, another would turn off its engines and just coast over the target, releasing the two bombs. Without their engines on, the planes would only make the small whoosh sound, um, which the German soldiers thought sounded like the sound of a witch's broom, which is hence the name Night Witches. That is really spooky. And I, really I know. Like I that. love this so much. It also reminds me of when I used to come home late and um, I would just, and we had a very, very long drive at our old house and I would just turn off my lights and drive in the dark. Like, you know, I, I totally get why they freaked out. You're sitting in the dark. And all you hear is, and then all of a sudden bombs. And you know, after a certain period of time, like once it's happened enough, you know that wishing sound means bomb is coming. Yeah, but, but you don't know where the, the bomb wind. is coming from. And it's also, or it could yeah. just be the wind. Yeah. And the planes were so small, they didn't show up on radar. So they like the Germans couldn't be like, well, we can't see them with their eyes, but the radar's like, it's over there. Yeah, but it wasn't. But it wasn't. Ah! So, you know, this like terrifying. I get yeah. it. I love it. The women of the 588 took on this name with pride, much in the tradition of underdogs everywhere. So the Germans soon came up with different theories of how these women could be so fearless, saying they were either on drugs or prisoners who'd been forced to fly for their freedom. Um, so you can see why the Germans thought there had to be something going on. Like, sometimes a bomb would get stuck under the wing and it wouldn't release. And so the navigator would just casually climb out in the middle of the air, crawl over the wing, and just give the bomb a little push. Just a little push. Just a casual little push. Little it's little fine. Little push. It's fine. It's like those photos of people that you see, like, with the early planes and they're, like, playing tennis on the wing of the planes. And now live from 1942, we have a quote from Nina Raspopova herself of the 46th Night Guards Regiment, a.k.a. the Night Witches. Nina? The aircraft guns fired at us fiercely from all directions, and suddenly I felt the aircraft hit. My foot slipped down into an empty space below me. The bottom of the cockpit had been shot away. I felt something hot streaming down my left arm and leg. I was wounded. Blinded by the searchlights. I don't know what accent this is. Blinded by the searchlights, I could discern nothing in the cockpit. I could feel moisture spraying inside the cockpit. The fuel tank had been hit. I was completely disoriented. The sky and earth were indistinguishable to my vision. 
But far in the distance, I could see the sparkle of our regimental runway flooding light, and it helped restore my orientation. An air wave lifted us, and I managed to glide back over the river to the neutral zone, where I landed the aircraft in darkness. Thank you, Nina. Um, we can fall into the trap, though, of assuming that these women were somehow immune to fear. As Major Maria Smanova, the commander of the squadron, later revealed, this would be to ignore the real courage that it takes to go out again and again, even while being afraid. We face risks every night. You shouldn't misinterpret my words and think we face death openly and bravely. It is not true. We never became accustomed to fear. But for each mission and as we approached the target, I became a concentration of nerves and tension. My whole body was swept by fear of being killed. We had to break through the fire of anti-aircraft guns and also escape the searchlights. We had to dive and sideslip the plane in order not to be shot down. All this affected my sleep enormously. When we returned from our missions at dawn, I couldn't fall asleep. I tossed in bed and had anxiety attacks. We slept two to four hours each day throughout the four years of the war. Once my regiment sent me to a recreation center for medical treatment to restore my health, but I ran away after three days because I couldn't stay when the others were risking their lives, so I returned to my regiment. Fear was always an inseparable part of our flights, but we knew we had to go through it for we were liberating our motherland. I feared for my squadron. Each night when I climbed into the air, I thought not so much about the assignment as of the possibility of crashes and death. It was not only hard physical work, but mentally draining as well. In order to be prepared for battle, there was always one plane and crew ready to go at all times, often napping in the cockpit. A night's work could be up to 10 hours in winter. Their tactics meant that they had to maintain eagle-eyed awareness to avoid enemy fire. Or eaglet-eyed awareness. (laughs) And they were also at risk of just plain crashing into a mountain if visibility was poor or they sneezed at the wrong moment. And you know, it's the Russian winter. It's not great flying conditions. Also, as Hitler would find out, not great weather for invading either. Look, it's not great weather for anything really in the Russian winter. Like, except snowmen, maybe? Building snowmen? Too cold to snow, probably for a solid. Probably, yeah. It wasn't only the pilots and navigators that deserve attention for their efforts, though. So to get the planes in the air required the skill and discipline of the ground crew. To increase the number of missions the night witches could fly, the 588 adopted a maybe slightly non-regulation system of allowing ground crew to work on all planes that came in, rather than specialising in one particular aircraft. So This was a bit of an army no-no, but it did mean they could get the plane restocked with bombs, checked over, and any minor issues fixed in around five minutes, which is how long it takes me to change one light globe in my car. Sounds like a cockpit team in, like, Formula One. Yeah, like, like imagine that. To like, for, like, every plane. Yeah, yeah, so imagine that when you sit, you're watching the racing, and they all zoom in, they change tyres. That's what they're doing. I feel like, also, it's a resource thing, because, like, in the British equivalent, you do have more people mm. and more resources you can access by this point in the war. So it makes more sense you have specialised ground crews for one type of plane. Mm. But in this context, very different. Well, not just one type of plane. They, the official regulations one plane, was one yeah. plane. So yeah. Like, this like is, in Formula One. Yeah, this is Marina's plane, so Marina's we're the team for this yeah. plane. Um, but that meant that, you know, you, if a plane came in and the team was busy or whatever, like that, that's not going to work. So mm. they basically were like, we can do all the planes. We're good at this. Fix all the planes. Yeah. Um, it also wasn't easy work. So the bombs weighed up to 50 kilos. Um, <laughs> and when you're trying to do this in a rush, like with the turnaround time, Armourers could end up moving nearly 3,000 kilos of bombs in a night. Once I did move two tons of firewood by myself. In one night? In one day, That's like one afternoon. Very impressive. I'd never moved into a plane to bomb the Germans, and I wasn't being bombed by the Germans at yeah. the time. And you weren't also in a hurry, so like that. Well, I was because the, cu- the customer was actually like really creepy. I didn't like it, so oh, I just wanted to, I wanted to leave. And I was yeah. like, I'll just do this myself, it's fine. That's fair. Off you yeah. go. Um, the mechanics fixing planes could be caught on night and day, and so and you know they're also at regular risk of losing a limb, like the propellers going around. They're like, oh shit! Yeah, ah! yeah. 
When not on duty, though, these women built themselves a sanctuary from war. They were building close relationships and escaping through familiar pursuits of embroidery or writing poetry. All Doctor Who fan fiction. No. The night... The night witches were determined to keep their regiment male-free to protect this space they had carved out for themselves. The nature of their relationships is not clear, but it is very possible and probably likely that some women engaged in romantic and sexual relationships with the other women. The head navigator, Rudnevar's diary, was full of her love for the pilots she flew with, and her jealousy is clear when they seem to prefer another. And this is true in male-only regiments as well. You get a lot of what we call situational homosexuality, mm. where the person themselves might not, might not identify as gay or lesbian or homosexual, but they do engage in sexual relationships. Yeah. And some of them might have actually been gay, but just really in closets. Some might have not been gay, but just wanted a cuddle. But just it was the 1940s in Russia, so um, not great to well, be gay. it's war. But like, what I mean is... like. It's 1940s Russia, so yeah. pre-civilian life, you can't just be openly gay anyway. No one could. No, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Except in, ironically, pre-Nazi Germany. Yeah. Only in the cities. Yeah. So, you know, like, it's it's one yeah. of those things, we don't have evidence that's clear. She could have just, it could have been situational. It yeah. could have been like, you know, she had always found women attractive and loved women. Um, it could have been friendship to, like, that extreme degree caused by war. But yeah. it's, you know, there's enough of them that it's probably likely. Yeah. This is not to say that it was all roses, sunshine, and strap-ons. Like with any people stuck in close quarters, there were tensions. This was particularly apparent between the pre-war pilots and the university recruits who came from very different worlds. So though they shared membership in the Komsomol and the Communist Party, um, they still had, you know, wildly different backgrounds. So mm. they did kind of bond through those, you know, shared memberships. But at the same time, it was like, I grew up at a farm. I grew up at the university. Yeah. I speak Russian with a country accent. Exactly. I speak three yeah. languages. Yeah. yeah. I speak French. Yeah. So... <laughs> I don't speak French, <laughs> as you all what know. What is this? The Catherine the Great Court? <laughs> so, bourgeoisie! Very on brand for the Soviet Union. Red Army regiments, including the 588th Night Bombers, had a politruck officer, which was basically a political officer responsible for organising political meetings and lectures for the recruits, and definitely not at all related to propaganda. <laughs> Yevdokia Rakovich was the politruck for the Night Witches, but her role also took on that of mother to these women. She was responsible for maintaining morale, and her mothering was crucial to motivating the women when things seemed bleak. In April 1944, the Night Witches joined the Red Army Offensive on the Crimean Peninsula. They flew every night with no breaks against an enemy throwing up everything it could. The offensive, however, was successful, and the Red Army defeated the Germans at Sevastopol. With this victory under their belt, the 588 joined the 4th Air Army again at the 2nd Belarus Front and joined the push into Poland, East Prussia and Germany in the winter of 1944-1945. to the Night Witches lost several members during the last desperate attacks of the Germans. On the 23rd of December 1944, the Night Witches flew a record 324 flights in one night, dropping 60 tonnes of bombs in the Battle for Warsaw. And remember, these bombs are hand-loaded by humans. Mm-hmm. These bombs have women putting them onto the wings, running around holding these bombs. Yeah, and then getting out of the plane and kicking them yep. off the wings when they yep. get stuck. Yeah. Fuck you, Warsaw. You I know. mean, fuck you, Nazi. And to fit, you know, 324 flights in one night. Like, that's, that's constant. Yeah. You know, round, in... round. Like, there's no rest Load for anybody. Up, no yeah. rest. Everyone's going. Mm. So, 32 night witches died over the course of the war. Raskova herself actually died in a plane crash on the 4th of January 1943. On the way to Stalingrad, so... Not on the front, which is kind of sad. Like she's like going home, so she relaxed. Yeah, yeah. Like that's where the majority of car crashes happen because you're heading home and you're like, oh, I can chill out now. I'm ten minutes from home. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, um, it was quite like the the regiments really struggled after her death. 
Um, a lot of them were worried that they'd be disbanded because she'd been such a key, key figure in kind of like making them exist. She was like the figurehead. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they were like, oh shit, people are going to be like, get rid of the women now. Um, and we'll two, do the two, this for Raskova. The two other female regiments, at this point, they ended up with male commanders and male like um, ground crew and stuff started kind of coming in. Um, so yeah, it was like, it was a huge, you know, death of a hero was in the papers. Her ashes are in the Kremlin wall, which is a very high honour. Makes the concrete nice and strong. Yep. Does a good job. Yep. The 588th flew more than 24,000 combat missions and won over 20 Heroes of the Soviet Union awards, which was very disproportionate compared to the other female air regiments and male air regiments, um, who all average between one and three ha! HSUs. So <laughs> it's a little bit like, you know, um, to get a HSU as a night flyer particularly, you needed 800 successful combat flights, as well as glowing recommendations of your courage, discipline and bravery. So I feel like this really shows, like, the lengths these women went to, like, either to protect their home or to prove the haters wrong, you know, like, or, or both. Both is good. Um, like, you know, this really shows the efforts they were going to, I guess. After the war, almost all female aviators were demobilised, with the few remaining relegated to minor roles, not limited to air traffic controllers and parachute packers, and even demoted. Parachute packers seems particularly ironic, considering these women didn't even have parachutes for most of the war. Like, they didn't get parachutes till like, late 1944. Was that a fabric shortage thing, though? It was a fabric shortage thing. Um, there was also an element of... Weight. You don't want to get caught. Yeah, weight, and yeah. you don't want to get caught. Yeah. So it's more heroic to go down with your plane than to abandon your plane and then get caught by the enemy. How very late war Japanese pilot. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> so, like, there was that going on as well. So it was sort of like, the plane's going to only carry two bombs. If we give them a parachute, it can carry one. We yeah. don't want that. Also, you know, real heroes would just go down with the ship. Yeah. I don't know why they're British, but there they are. Because <laughs> we know I can't do any accents. <laughs> parachute packers seems particularly ironic considering these women didn't even, didn't even have parachutes most of the war. This was widespread across all Soviet women in military service. That, like, they'd been very useful during the war, but the minute it was over, they were like, get back in the kitchen, get back to having babies. And the Soviets, I'm assuming, were still giving out motherhood medals at this point as well. I don't actually know. It didn't mention it in any of the sources I read. Uh. Um, what was the motherhood medal, by the way? I didn't know Soviets did motherhood medals. I'm pretty sure they did. I know Germans did. Motherhood medals, um, medal for being a mother. Um, Hitler was a great fan of them. So... Um, they did actually get medals sometimes for having a lot of children. So um, it was created in 1944 uh, and it was changed in like 1947. So you it, you got a medal if you had seven, eight or nine children. Um, and it was all about because like they'd lost so many people during the war. Like I think for every American military man, every US military dude lost in the war, the Soviets lost 80 civilians. Mm. Which just shows... Like, the Soviet numbers of casualties is absolutely fucking Appalling, insane. and it's probably not even accurate. Yeah. Because um, they wanted to hide how many they'd lost. Yeah, we don't actually know, like, for certain that that's how many night we just died, because, like, we don't know. It's, it's like 32 it's, official It's based deaths, on, yeah. like, regiments being like, oh, yeah, you know, Marina died, and Irina died. I, I don't know Russian names. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's going through and sort of adding up the numbers and being like, okay, the 588 say that they lost these three women, and so, like, adding them all together. Mm. This was widespread across all Soviet women, women in military service and also across women across most of the world. Once the men came back from war, mm. everyone was like, thanks for all that. Off you go, back to the kitchen. Let's have a baby boom. This went in badly for the housing mm. market. But many of the night witches had not been aviators before the war and likely wished to return to what they had been doing, getting a degree at university, working or even starting a family. Other women who may have wished to continue to serve were denied on medical grounds. The night witches' arduous, stressful work had taken its toll and many had health problems afterwards. So in the 1990s, Raina Pennington interviewed surviving female aviators. 
um, which is really cool. It's great. Mm. That's where we drew some of the quotes from. So of the 77 she interviewed, only 12 remained in the military after the war. And then of these, half were discharged in the next five years. Some women did try to find work in civil aviation, but very few did, um, even though some of them had worked in it before the war. Um, There was a really... um, It was such a complicated thing going on. There was a lot of efforts to push women out of the military after the war by saying they were medically unfit. So Your uterus is calling. Are you going to (laughs) answer? So one of the women went to a flight school after the war and she was like, I can fly. Let I'm a fucking night yeah. witch. Let me, tra- me do some more training. Um, and they're like, no, 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 no. It's taken its toll on your body. Your body can't deal with it. And then her husband was like the same thing. And they're like, oh yeah, come on. And then she like traveled all around Europe and did speaking tours and had children in the next two years. So like her body was doing all right. Yeah. So, but it was one way to kind of keep women out after the war. That's very annoying. Mm-hmm. As to why women were so quickly demobilised, as we said before, it seems to be the same story that was happening around the world after World War II. Get these women back to the kitchen. They give you a service. I mean, at least the factory in the Soviet Union. Get them back to the factory or the bedroom. Basically, um, the Soviet Union wished to go back to the pre-war social order, which even though women were theoretically legally equal to men in the Soviet Union, women didn't belong in war and probably not even the workforce either. Well, the workforce is complicated because you've got you know, communist women's ideals of... jobs. So still got women's jobs. Sort of, yeah. It's it's less straightforward in the Soviet Union mm. than it was in... Because there was factory work and stuff going on. Um, but there also was this huge push for motherhood. Yeah. With the loss of so many people in the war in the Soviet Union, men as well as women, the labour force needed all the help it could get. Pre-war, Soviet women had been a significant proportion of the labour force, and so they needed to get to work again to rebuild the Soviet Union. In late 1945, around 63% of the Moscow workforce was women. However, this wouldn't have been helped by the absence of so many men who had yeah. all died. It's like, you know, statistics can be manipulated. But I think it's it's telling that a significant portion of women in the workforce before the war yeah. were women. Like, that shows, it's, it's you know, there's some differences there. Mm. Also, as with most post-war periods, you got to make more babies to rebuild. So the government felt women were also pretty crucial there too. In a tale as old as time, gender roles didn't really change all that much over the course of the war, at least in the minds of those in power. So as we're going to see in different episodes, women themselves were starting to think differently. But also, you know, they were still... Um, but you don't have the power behind you. They don't have the power behind them. And they also still have the same beliefs as well. Um, like, regardless of what the women themselves thought, the government didn't really think that firing planes into enemy fire changed much. And men were men and women were women. And women made babies while men rode bears bare-chested on There calendars. are two genders, baby makers and bear riders. Isn't that the case? Yes. That's what you have in a gender reveal. You either have a pink cloud come out or you have a bear bursting through a cake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 There were some night witches who believed this too, um, believing that their war work was actually unnatural for women. Many also believed you had to choose flying or family. You couldn't have both at the same time. Whether because of such beliefs or simple war weariness, most of the former night witches and other female aviators did not protest their post-war demobilisation and exclusion from military service. Life in the Soviet Union after the war was hard, with widespread destruction and food shortages. Men and women were working 18-hour days to fix things and there was simply no time or energy to question anything. Female aviators' contributions to the war were largely forgotten in favour of pushing women's roles as mothers and as labour. And this had started even during the war. Um, In 1944, Stalin acknowledged the important role of women in the war, yet only mentioned their support roles, not their combat roles, which, as we know, they were in combat roles by this point. In May 1943, night bomber navigator Galina Dukovic wrote in her diary, In the beginning, we fought for the right to be an independent military unit. Then we won the right to fight. They watched us with envy, but we achieved the right to be equal in battle. And when we achieved this, we showed that we could be in the front ranks of warriors. 
Um, but unfortunately, the Soviets were very quick to forget this. So I think it's kind of sad. Like a lot of these women kind of had the, had that feeling during the war. They're like, we've shown them, we've proved to them what we can do. Um, and then it was like, lol, you nah, fucking thought, make a baby. So you know, like I don't know. I but I think the night witches are really cool. Yeah, I think we did address this in the episode, but that whole idea of like, wow, what what like cool kick ass women, and it kind of erases the complexity of like some of them only became pilots because, A, it was an avenue open to them to mm-hmm. be active in combat. Uh, and then after the war was over, they were like, this was awful. Let's go home and make babies. So- I find it really interesting. Like, you Google night witches and there's all these, like, you know, little pieces, like, from Vanity Fair and stuff about these amazing women you've never heard of, the night witches. Um, and I was like, cool, that sounds really interesting. And I'll, you know, do the research. But it's a very simplified version. Of course it is. Yeah. Like, it's very much like these women went in and they terrified the Germans and it was really, really fun. They're kind of like Soviet friendly Friday fishes. In yeah, a way. yeah. Like, like these adventurous yeah. bitches. But they were just they were normal women being like, I wanna support Approaching war for a complex yeah, variety of I, reasons. I wanna support the war, I you know, I wanna have some fun too, maybe, but also yeah. like, yeah, I just gotta help the motherland. Yeah. Um and I'm fucking terrified because I'm, you know, flying in a plane that's like literally held together by Sticky hopes tape. and prayers. Yeah. <laughs> it's like and I've got two bombs on me and there's Germans blowing me firing at me. I think one of the things we've tried to do with podcasts is show the complexity of wartime, mm. no matter what your gender or your role is. Um, and it comes in back to just Marta Hari, like, was she a spy, was she not a spy? But it reminds me of, like, the, t- the total war experience in the Soviet Union was probably even greater than that of Britain and France. Oh, yeah. Even though France was occupied. That's a different war. That occupation is different to fighting a war, I yeah. think. Even though the French were fighting a war. Sorry, we mentioned the French. I'm really sorry. Uh, but, yeah, they had to, like, go donate blood every couple of weeks. They were, like, bleeding people and putting them mm. into the factories for, like, 14-hour shifts and stuff. Yeah. That was so desperate because the Nazis had the machinery. And the Soviets had the men. The Soviets had the men. So it was the meat meeting the metal. Yeah. And in this case, the meat did win, but at such a horrendous yeah. cost. Like, I think there was – I might be thinking of a very different period of time. I am. But – um. Like hundred or fifty billion years ago, one of the Russian czars terrorized the city of Novgorod, and so much blood went into the river. The river didn't freeze for a few years. Wow! And I'm like, there were probably patches of water in Russia that didn't freeze for a yeah, very long time. Yeah, that would time. make sense. I mean, they were just pretty much literally throwing bodies. Yeah. And so the women wanted, they you know, they you had no choice. In they a wanted way. to be involved because they were like, well, everyone's gone off. Like, Bye. they're throwing my husband at a German with a machine gun. Yeah. Like, what can I do to help? <sighs> War is hell. The Eastern Front's War like a hell. different kind of, like, unprepared hell yeah. in a way. It's like... I think when I hear about unprepared fronts, that's what upsets me the most, like Gallipoli as yeah. well. There's this idea of, oh, we'll be in and out in five minutes. Yeah. No and- one's going to this knowing what it's going to turn. And you don't go into any war knowing what it's going to turn into. But, like, there just... Di- yeah, it's like completely beyond the scope of anyone imagination. It's like comparing the, you know, air force bases in Britain to the ones in the Soviet Union. Yeah. 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 Like you were, you were, did have people sleeping in cockpits and stuff, but you had radar. Yeah. Yeah. You had multiple kinds of bomber. You had happening. new planes. You had. You didn't mm. have, you know, these old PO2 planes. And you had a lot more experienced pilots, even though a lot of them did die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, pilot as, as a job was pretty high I casualty. I feel like now if I was, I'd want to be like a radar operator. Yeah, that'd be cool. Or something. Also... I'd want to be in the Air Force because my grandma was in the Air Force, yeah. as you know, my, in the Women's Auxiliary Australian Air Force. I think that'd be really cool. If yeah. you had to be in an aviation position during a, in World War Two, what would it be? Any country. Don't say the Nazis. That's bad. I don't want to be in the Nazis. I do like the Navy. Like, I get terribly seasick, so that would be <laughs> a really bad plan. But the Navy's kind of cool too. But then the Air Force is cool. I just think, not to be shallow, the, the Air Force had, like, the cooler uniforms. I don't mind the Navy uniforms. I like a high-waisted blue pant, and I just don't want to die in, at the sea. I'd like to be bombed very quickly by but the But see, Nazis, I can swim. <laughs> Not that far. Anyway, 
So sorry for that rambling. Um, thank you for listening. We have a lot of the social medias. We have a website, womenofwarpod.com. We have an Instagram, womenofwarpod.com. No, Insta. all the socials are at Women of War Pod. Yeah. We've kept it nice and simple. Women of War Pod. Yeah. Women of War Pod. We also now have an email newsletter. We do. Hannah, would you like to tell the beautiful people how to get the email newsletter? Well, what you want to do, guys, is you want to go to our website. Women of War Pod.com. Yes. Dot thank au. you, Nicola. Not dot au. Dot com. Just dot com. We're international listeners, guys. Uh, and then you want to go to the subscribe page, put in your deets. We only want your first name and your email, and we will not do anything naughty with it. Uh, and you can get all... I will. No, she won't. I, she doesn't have control of it. It's okay. And you, <laughs> you will get all the behind-the-scenes goss and some fun facts and a reminder each fortnight when we come out with an episode. And we're going to talk also about, like, the books we use for research. So mm-hmm. you can have check the... Like, if you like the Marta Hari episode, I'll be talking about one of the books I used for that. And you yep. like, I like that. I'm going to read that book. You get extra, like, tidbits that we couldn't fit in the episode. Yep. In addition to our email newsletter, if you really, really like us, we would really love it if you could chuck us a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes like five, ten minutes. We've got a couple of... Five, ten minutes? How long are you writing a review for? I'm a very slow typer. We don't want essays. It's okay. It takes, it takes five, you like ten seconds. two minutes. I meant like to sign up and oh, like okay. log in and I'm, stuff. Yeah, and remember right. your Apple ID password. Um, if you want to leave us a review, that would be really greatly appreciated. Or if you don't want to leave a review, you shoot us an email saying yeah. you like us and that would be really nice because it's always good to have feedback and it's an important part of the creative process. Yeah. We want to know what you like, what you hate. Are you done? Are we done? I think we're done. done. I think we're done. Thank you for tuning in for another another episode. I keep saying another week, but we release fortnightly because we're both very tired. Um, Now, I think the next time we visit someone flying, it will be probably our first non-cisgender woman, which is very, very exciting. It'll be very cool. It will be World War II, though. I'm very, very sorry. Yeah. We didn't really do France in this episode. That's a good start. So we did do World War II. But yeah. It's different. It's the Eastern Front, not the Western Front. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.